really nice to, to, to have you have you fellas on i i've been snooping on the page since it started and then sort of uh, all the books nearly all the books are on my my wish list now once the wife gives the amazon permission i get one a month i'm going to start getting them in and um just looking at the piece of britain thing and just intentionally excluding Ireland because having that um uh, racial history in my makeup as a McGrath or McGrath, uh, intentionally excluding Ireland. I thought it's a different country. It's not part of that that remit of what I was writing about. And um, yeah, I just looked and I just thought I really love it. Snooping on the site, loving all the stories, all the all the little new snippets of information about the lakes and what inhabits them. And I just thought, okay, got to talk to these guys, got to pick their brains and ask them. I was just saying to to Rob, you know. Um, every crypto person has one thing in common if nothing else and that we've all gone taken being a bit weird to like a professional level we decided to write about it and declare it to the world <laughs> i think i'm into this weird thing and i'm going to tell you about it and research it and the rest of it so so what brought you guys what brought you to this well i think gary's been like investigating for the last 25 years or so so i mean he's a he's the best person to give you an overview on that yeah, I have. I've been uh, pretty much interested since. Um, I was about five or six. And uh, the world of the unknown monsters was still alive, actually. There we are. Love it. That's my copy. And uh, and then it was uh, really Graham McEwan's The Mystery Animals of Britain and Ireland. Um, I became fascinated by the stories of uh, those, you know, of lake monsters, for want of a better phrase, in uh, the more remote parts of my own country. So started researching it properly in about the mid-90s. Uh, yeah, probably about 25 years, 26 years. And uh, went and visited the places, like Donegal, counties Donegal and counties Mayo and Galway. And um, particularly so um, County Galway with the Connemara region, where... There have been uh, the majority of the reports, um, certainly the modern day reports mm-hmm. after the 1900s, and uh, just became fascinated. I've been going at least once or twice a year, maybe sometimes three, four times a year since then. Um, and then, you know, myself and Rob got together um, about 2012 um, through a bit of uh, just a bit of good fortune and, for want of a better phrase, uh, that old sort of Serious ancient university called Synchronicity, and uh, we got together and we've done um, research trips, uh, sort of mini expeditions, um, about five times now, four or five times since 2013. So, but wow. I've been fascinated by it. I've read everything I could, I've interviewed, interviewed as many people as I can, and um, I've become good friends with a lot of people, particularly in Connemara, um, due to the phenomenon. So it just it. Uh, it fascinates me and enthralls me, and I'll never ever tire of it. I feel the same, especially with Lake Monsters, more than anything else. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you guys, actually, and especially in regards to interviewing witnesses, I'm always trying to think about what is the one factor, what is the one attribute that each one of these witnesses displays in the retelling of their story? Like for me, normally, I'm looking for a mundane detail that doesn't belong in the story. But they can't forget yeah. so showing they've had some sort of i call it a traumatic but you know a fix it fixative uh encounter that they can't forget every single detail is always there well, what's the thing that you guys normally looking for when you're taking accounts interviewing witnesses well i think um you usually get an idea of you know whether these people have actually seen something or not you know and i think from by the fact that Gary has known these people for a lot of years and he's spoken to them at length, you know, you can, it's, you cannot conclude anything else, but they've seen something unusual. Mm. You know, they're not mistaken. They've seen something that they can't explain. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's unexplainable, mm-hmm. but, you know, they are honest in what they've seen. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely their honesty and the fact that they, they don't really, they, they don't make, um, whole sort of 
a big issue out of it as such. Um, it's sort of a lot of the times, a lot of eyewitnesses, particularly in the west of Ireland, are very reticent. They're very, mm. you know, don't even want to speak about it. And it's that that's shyness, um, you know, and it's it sort of it, it makes it more believable. Um, mm. I, I guess that's really that's what it is that, that that gets me, you know. And I've there's a there's actually an eyewitness in Connemara who I have only spoken to once and a good friend of mine in Connemara um, who's the librarian in Clifton who myself and Rob would know uh, for a long time, Paul Kyo and Paul spoke to him just by chance uh, in the library and uh, just happened to talk about lake monsters and he said, oh yeah, myself and my dad were, were up in a, in, a, in a remote mountain lake, a, a loch as known in Ireland, and just spelled differently from the, you know, the Scottish mm-hmm. version I said, yeah, we saw this animal, we're up, you know, collecting, uh, cutting turf. And we saw this uh, creature, this long hump, which they described it as the size and shape of a pucan, which is mm-hmm. a, an Irish uh, rowing boat, which was found around the west of uh, west of Ireland. And he said it was the same size and shape. Watched it as the sun was setting, crossed the lock, left a trail of slime, interestingly enough, behind it. Mm. And that was it. And never spoke about it again. I have I have his contact details. I've tried to speak to him. Mm. Doesn't want to know. You know, it's, it's, it's spoken passing, and it's the fact that he doesn't want any publicity. Do you know? And that's well. I mean, look what happens to people sometimes him. when they get publicity. I mean, Loch Ness is a good sign of it. I've talked to a lot of witnesses who just say, "I'll tell you if you keep it anonymous." I'll tell you if you, and the Bigfoot's even worse, but the Lake Monsters as well, rural focus, especially, I guess there's reputation. If you live in the village and then suddenly you've seen a monster, you've got to wear that, haven't you? With all your friends that you've known for 40, 50 years, and suddenly perhaps you're the guy's a bit strange, or you've lost your marbles, or you're seeing things, or hitting the bottle a bit too hard. Yeah, there's especially, uh, you know, in the country, because my, my dad and a lot of my uh relations um my dad's born and bred country you know mm-hmm. and um you know he's a sheep farmer like and i still help him i've been helping him the last five six years uh, and it's that th- those country people are, are mm-hmm. there no there's no nonsense with them you know there's no I'll, uh, there's no waffle it's mm-hmm. told like it is so if you tend to go off you know on a, on a certain line of thought or train of thought you're not really, you aren't going to be taken seriously. You know, it's a real mm. pragmatism. Yeah. You know, and, and it's not, it's not as in, it's just, it's just, it's just a no, no old nonsense, you know, don't talk out rubbish, like don't, you know, and don't go into the flights of fancy. Yeah. So it's that, so yes, it is. It goes back to if you're, if you're in the West of Ireland, but it also, and, and, and you know, you can't, you can't lose face, but there is also the fact that those people in the West of Ireland are more susceptible it's, it's a strange sort of, uh, you know, it's a strange economy, like where they're also, not only are they very, there's no nonsense and they're very hard, but there's also a more, in those people, there's a more susceptibility to folklore and to okay. those stories, you know, because they've grown up with it, you okay. know, like West of Ireland, like the same in, probably in Scotland as well, where those people didn't have te- television or that, you know, and... They just relied upon each other and local communities and that, and you know, and, and so there's a, as I said, this is more of a, uh, it's, it's they're just more, yeah, just more susceptible and more, no, not susceptible, that's the wrong term, I think more, more openness, mm. more open mindedness, we bit, you know. Uh, Do you think it's, like, it's the biggest Irish speaking area anyway, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. some of the some of the old folklore has maintained itself. I, I found that in parts of Wales where, where I grew up, where there's Welsh-speaking yeah. populations, Scotland too, and the Highlands, but also a place like Iceland, for example, which is isolated and has kept a, a part of its folklore alive. I said to people that my have an Irish family um, that my view of Ireland said that it still entertained folklore as a possible reality, not that they believed it. But it was a part of everyday life, still to this day. Yeah, well, you, you had that in Ireland. You had the the Shanachai, who was the traditional storyteller, who would have been around, you know, country, you know, in in around the the, the villages mm-hmm. and in around uh, colleges, and he told those stories. 
were passed on to him by his father and his grandfather. And that was particularly prevalent in the West of Ireland. So, and that was a real, real, that was, that was the real sort of a, a big event. You know, children were, 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 were supposed to be in bed. You know, it was only the adults on the fire, you know, tea, maybe drinking a bit of potching and, or having a Guinness. And it was just, you know, having a drink. And it was, but the Shanghai was a real big event. So mm-hmm. that was, that was very prevalent. So that, that has unfortunately become very, that doesn't really exist anymore. You know, there are still some people who, who would, who would still probably term themselves as Shanachais. And there is one man still alive in a place called Letter Frack in Connemara. It's called Paddy Fitzpatrick, who is in his nearly, I'd say in his nineties. And now I have still to speak to him, but he's very into that whole, not only the folklore, but also the, the water horse. Mm. You know, um, and the Akeshka in Irish, you know. And of course, the thing about the water horse is that, you know, it's, it's shared with the rest of the Celtic kingdom, so Scotland, but it's also Scandinavian as well. So mm. it's a common thread amongst all those people. And it's obviously also a fact that around the 9th or 10th century, you know, when the Vikings and the Scandinavians came and settled in parts of Scotland and Ireland, you know, that you you see this sort of tradition of the horse first sort of make yeah make yourself notice. It would make sense yeah, to me, I suppose, suppose with the movement of, of peoples during that time. And they also had a kingdom in the um in the east of Ireland, didn't they? So that would make sense that that would stretch across. Um I, I think it's it's really fascinating, yeah. especially the names in in my limited research on Irish Lake Monsters, obviously I have heard of things like Pierce and uh I hope I'm saying this right. The Dohi, is that right? Or is it Dovahi? Dovaku, is it? It is Dovaku. Okay. Um, that. Uh, you're, you're freezing up this slightly. Oh. Got you, Gary. Go on. Go ahead. Yeah, just um, the Dovaku is also known in in Scotland. Uh-huh. And the Western Western Isles and Sky, but it was traditionally that that was the old Irish name for um for an otter. Mm-hmm. So basically, it was a uh, translates as water hound uh-huh. or hound of the water. So, but it's also it also relates to a, a beast that was known, you know, going back in the sixteen hundreds. You know, obviously Roger O'Flaherty and the great tales of the, you know his travels in the west of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, West or Lower Connaught, and Lower Connaught is a region that uh, span, you know, spans sort of west of country of, of Galway City, uh, takes in the southern part of Connemara. So Connemara itself is just really the the Atlantic uh, seaboard side of the county of Galway. But mm-hmm. the the Doberco was known as well up in the Donegal and Sligo and Leitrim, and you know that's we've researched that and I've researched that a fair bit, and. It does. There hasn't been there hasn't been an actual beast as such or an unidentified creature. Uh, Lock monster. It's really. Uh, it's really basically. It's it's sort of like a composite animal where it's it's based from. It's based on large or really like a, you know a burnt sort of like gigantic you know specimens of of, of the normal Irish otter or ones that have unusual coat patterns, mm-hmm. colours. And it's all been sort of entwined and you know interwoven within folklore, and that Doverku is now, uh, you know, the, the the beast that people talk about, um, is really actually just a, a I think a composite animal, a folkloric mm-hmm. animal, but it is based on real on on genuine sightings, and the interesting part about that, from basically a biological point of view, would be the the giantism, the really really mm-hmm. big specimens. I mean some. Others in Ireland have been have been, you know, said they've reached over six feet in length, even up as up to seven feet. So oh. that's where that's uh, that's where that whole thing comes into play, you know. I mean, it is interesting. <clears throat> Go ahead, Rob. Sorry. There's certainly anecdotal reports of otters, you know, six and a half, seven feet in the in the historical press. Hmm. So, you know, so it wouldn't be unusual for every now and then a, a, a rather big specimen to, you know. There, which could cause obviously a bit of, um, you know, a bit of be out of the ordinary sort of thing. 
makes sense to me an outsized animal you know existing in an area and for whatever reason genetic reasons i mean we know that the amazonian otter grows to six feet in length or more um now it's not the same species but it is possible within the genus of that animal to get to that size so it's not really outside of the realms of possibility I, I i did read a little bit you've written about that before i don't know if it was one of the comments on, on your page but i thought that's a good answer essentially are we looking at points in outsized versions of animals seen in unusual settings like your seal serpent idea as well you know how far does that stretch across i mean um you know on, on times when i've seen gray seals perhaps in uh you know around the coast and cornwall places like that it's it's a big animal you know, it's surprisingly big yeah. when you see it up close. And if you, uh, they were diving to the surface there, actually, if one of those had popped up next to me, I think it would have given me a fright if I was, <laughs> if I was unaware of its presence, because it's a, it's a big animal. And um, I do yeah. wonder how often in our late monster tales do we, do we encounter something like that that just catches us off guard. And I notice that you guys, you kind of deal with that. So to tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Well, we, we we didn't really. I was uh, the whole thing about cryptozoology, and uh, you know, if you look at the the sub sort of discipline of, mm-hmm. of lake monster research, I was always sort of um, would have been influenced a lot by other researchers. And in basically in Connemara in the west of Ireland, I was under the impression that a lot of the you know the modern day reports were basically based on on primitive whales and archaeosites surviving. And it wasn't until myself and Rob got together and we collaborated. And the more and more we looked at the, you know, the anecdotal evidence, and then just looking at the the physical descriptions, mm. that a seal like a pinniped, you know, not even or, or more 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 so really an, an, an otarid like a, an, an eared seal, you know, mm. as in a, a sea lion, um, would have been more would have been more responsible and would have been more suitable as a candidate, um, for those uh, reports when you look at. Some of the details mm. they can be all attributed to pinnipeds. That's really fascinating. When you look at those reports from Connemara, you know, in the fifties and sixties, like the uh, rolling about on the lock shore. Mm. I spoke to you know Darren Nash about it, and he told me about. It. He said, "Look, Gary, pinnipeds will slough their skin to get rid of uh, unwanted dead skin. That's right, and maybe yeah. external parasites. You know, a forked tail can be attributed to the the shape of the you know the 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 hind feet." As in pinniped is Latin for uh, you know fin foot, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so you have that. You have even even surprisingly even modern day it's kind of a lengthy neck. Look at the leopard seal, for example. Look at sea lions. Mm-hmm. You know we have that in our, in our, in our books as well. Um, you know, even the coloration, even the small ears or horns. Sorry, can we attribute to that? The open mouth, the curiosity against uh, you know yeah. with say dogs like sheep dogs. You know, and people, and also the surprising, the maneuverability, the speed, at which a lot of those animals, especially Loch Narrowan, which is actually one of the most famous in the world, mm-hmm. and it's actually recognised as being the the best and most detailed lake monster sighting anywhere in the world, anywhere, and happened in the West of Ireland, February twenty second, nineteen sixty eight. You know, a family of seven. I've interviewed yeah. sadly two of them, you know, and and they watched it and they told me like. Both Stephen Coyne Senior and Junior, who are both deceased, told me about the speed at which mm-hmm. that animal moved across the small lock. You know, they, they said, "Look, that you the speed it moved across from one side of the lock to the other, which is only small enough, but it's still about two hundred yards in mm-hmm. in uh, length." Was the speed it takes to click your fingers, and that's all. That can be all attributed to pinniped. Even the the shock at seeing something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, in the west of Ireland, you know, and that's where we that's where we explored through Rob's amazing research. Was the the accounts of you know the escapees, you know, and Rob will tell you more about that. So it's just fascinating when you put it all together like that. It does make sense. I think what you have to remember is if you've got a body of water that's been associated with, for instance, a water horse or some other legend. Now we know that you know there's hundreds and if not thousands of lakes in Scotland and Ireland that are supposed to be. Mm. Um, inhabited by these animals. Now, obviously, they don't exist because we could have seen them by now, but there is a tradition for one reason or the other about a waterfalls or some other superstition. And if a seal or a big otter 
be seen by somebody in one of those lakes with that reputation, then obviously they've seen a monster. You know, that's how your mind will work because you wouldn't expect to mm. see something there. But what Gary was sort of alluding to was that the surprising thing we found in all our research was that it wasn't just indigenous species that could be found around Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we thought tonight that probably over the last hundred years, maybe a dozen, two dozen sea lions have escaped captivity. So from zoos, circuses, um, private collections, or were deliberately leased um, before the world wars. Mm. And there is historical documented evidence that a number of these animals have escaped. We've never seen them, we've never found remains, but they have escaped. Uh -huh. But if you look at the morphology of a sea lion, which can be eight foot long, stand five foot high, oh yeah, got quite pronounced head and neck region because that's where its propulsion sort of comes from. If you were sort of driving along a lake in the middle of the night and you saw an animal that big and that shape come out of the water, you may well think you've just seen a, a plesiosaur or something. Um, and there are reports of apparent sea lions in Ireland as well. So hmm. if we have, in the absence of an animal that we can say definitely causes those things, then it has to be a case of mistaken identity and throwing a few exotic species as well. I think it's a very, um, <coughs> it's very interesting theory. I, having seen a sea lion up close swimming um, in the dock when I was in the US, just kind of cruising around, seeing if anybody had any scraps to give it, I w it was intimidatingly large. Really, really was. And it, of course, you know, we see these things on the television and like all wild animals, when you get up close to them, it's not the, the wondrous experience you expected. <laughs> you know, I'm fearful, you know. The other thing is that, you know, back in the 20s, the 30s, you know, you know, if you were, you know, back in the 20s, yeah. 30s, in the 50s and 60s, to some extent, we, uh, very we came community. Oh, sorry. You may not, you know, you may not know what you're looking at. You know, so very true. That adds to the mystery and the... Uh, yeah. 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 But there is also, Cross there is, yeah. There's also plenty of historical, but you get very big eels, and you get very big otters as well. We yeah, uh, mm -hmm. we across the, you know? oh. um, and that's more, that's the sort of mystery that's come out of the research. You know, are these particular species, or do they, as I've said, you know, every now and then you just get a big eel and you get a big mm -hmm. otter. And would that be, Rob, would that be your explanation for all the sightings? Is that what your research has led you to? I think if you, I mean, if you look at, as Gary said, look narrow one, yeah, where a family of seven, sort of, or six or seven, witnessed an animal for three hours. Mm -hmm. And narrow one is about, what? How, how wide is it? It's not very wide. It's about, what, 100 yards? You know, there's no way anything can live in there. Is there an inlet, an yeah, outlet to the sea? It's a very tiny, very tiny passage. Um, Deep or so shallow? Very shallow when we saw it, but it could okay. have been different back in the day. Is it, sorry for so many question, is it a rural path of the sea or at nightfall, would it be in total blackness? Could there be an no, opportunity for, for a land excursion or, or are there people around? No, it's pretty remote. Okay. Um, um, but it, you know, I mean, it's, so unless an animal would come in, as I said, you know, mm. in there, then but if you look at a lot of the other locks in Ireland, you know, with these with this history, again, they're so small. Mm. And the same with Scotland as well, to a certain degree. But, you know, there's no, it has to be animals coming in. Well, even Loch Ness is small, if you think about it, to scale as some of the lakes in the world, you know, 25 miles long, mile and a half at its widest. Uh, okay, a lot of it is obscured from public view, actually, when you get there. Um, but still, at the same time, even as a deep body of water, it would be hard to miss something that was there all the time. That's my opinion. Um, and that's... Yeah. yeah. The, one of the biggest... Uh, sorry, one of the biggest things about, about the west of Ireland, and particularly Connemara, are the, the multitude of lakes, of locks. Mm -hmm. Ireland ranks... Uh, I think one of the top five countries in the world for its size, for the amount of uh, locks, 
Um, you know, we obviously have uh, Russia, Canada, and Finland, mm. and Sweden. But Ireland's up there as well, because remember, Ireland is a, a small enough country, and there are over a thousand locks. Wow. So where you have the big, big deep bodies of, uh, and the big, you know, deep, long bodies in inlets and sea locks, and uh, you know, locks like Loch Morar and Shield, mm. you know, and Aki and Ness in, in Scotland, you have like countless of bodies of smaller, smaller and smaller bodies of water in Ireland. Oh, I mean, yeah. Connemara has over 300. So it's the mm. accessibility and the fact that they are on, and the majority of the sightings have happened. It's similar to the research that's been done with Bigfoot and the relief and the terrain. You know, they've done it in Vancouver Island. They've done it in the, you know, the mm. Pacific Northwest of, of, of the United States. And it's the same, same sort of thing. Like, the, you know, the majority of the sightings have happened where the locks are and actually where the, where it's remote enough and beside the Atlantic, uh, the Atlantic part of Ireland, you know, on the West Coast. Uh-huh. Um, but it's interesting, we're talking about seals. It's interesting because we came across through uh, another good friend of ours, good researcher, and we came across the recordings that uh, from the expeditions in the 60s, uh-huh. the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau. Uh, oh, uh, fantastic. We listened to them, we transcribed them. Yeah, they were, they were, they were previously un, un, unreleased, you know. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, they actually, there's a guy called Paul Welsh who lived uh, at one of the locks called Loch Anna. And Loch Anna and Shana Heaver are very famous within Irish Lake Monster Research because of Tom Joyce. So I don't know if you've heard of him, Andy, but there's lots of sightings have happened there. And we've I, came across unrecorded sightings. Them. But anyway, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry, what were we saying? No, I was just the, the, yes, the interesting was, yeah. But one of the interesting things was when we came across the the recordings, there was a, a sighting by Paul Welsh talking about an animal on Loch Bona, and he was out in their own boat and all the rest, and they you know they saw this unusual animal, and they've seen these things before, and it actually, from its description, it actually sounds like a, a common seal. Uh-huh. You know, the only thing the only thing that's slightly different is it, he said it has small ears, but in all intents and purposes. He describes a common seal, you know, and obviously there are the you know there's only common seals and grey seals, the two pinnipeds found round the UK and Ireland. So, you know, so that's interesting in itself, you know. I mean, my my question would be for most of these these locks and uh, lakes like lakes and locks that you you have sightings in. Always, my question is: Is there an outlet or an inlet from the sea? How long is it? How deep is yeah. it? Are there you know, turbines and power stations along the way? If an animal had to get out, like a seal, and get back in to make this journey, is it rural? Is it black at night? Then, you know what? Um, you know, what exactly would would it take to get in and out? We know with Loch Ness, for example, that seals do get in there from time to time, but they clearly come from the the River Ness side, and that's quite urban for for the most part. But at night, night is still night. You know, a seal could sneak in there, but maybe not a a forty foot long. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Nineteen yeah. thirties, maybe that sort of confused things a little bit, perhaps. Who knows? Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's it's difficult trying to. Well, I mean, you have to rationalise it basically you know you, you cannot sort of create you know monsters for the sake of monsters but can we also not and yeah, this is something that pops into my head a lot can we also not diminish monsters for the sake of rationale so sometimes when people have described to me something that's 40 feet in length i think okay knock off 10 feet because it's hard to judge the size in water knock off 10 feet you've still got 30 feet um, or some long cylindrical, you know, um, snake-like neck with a knee-like head on the end. I'm like, well, okay, sticking into the water. That's that's pretty hard for me to put down to a seal. If this person is to be believed, I can't. There's no way I can I can change that sighting. I can't do that. It doesn't fit for me. And those are the ones that really pique my interest. More and more as I go along, I'm finding myself wanting to be more skeptical to exclude as much as i can to leave get rid of the dross and and be left with the real deal what's left what cannot be disputed as far as um monster imposters are concerned uh, what's your opinion on that 
is it is there a hope in you or, or does the rationale of the um uh, well, it's a very good rationale rob as well does that rationale now say well actually if the witness tells me 30 feet really i've got to i've got to say what well, this is probably more 10 or 12 maximum to fit the seal serpent theory how would you deal with that the seal serpent theory is something slightly different um i don't want you know viewers to get confused there the, I mean, the seal serpent is a theoretical, speculatory exercise in Huberman's notion of a long neck finiped, uh -huh. which we felt we can you can make a case for it theoretically. And a North Atlantic fur seal or sea lion, where there aren't any of those species, that maybe have evolved a slightly longer neck. Um, due to a process of what they call quantum evolution mm -hmm. um, as a direct result of its environment may be a good match for water horses because you've got a big animal, it's got a mane, it's got a couple mm -hmm. of ears, you know, it's maybe the size of a small pony. You know, that might explain things, but that's a completely sort of speculatory mm -hmm. thing. With what we found, as I've said, as well, you know, apart from the fact that there have been a lot of you know, maybe reptilian looking sea lions that have escaped and got into places um, where they've caused a surprise over the years. And as Gary says, a lot of the reports, if you look at them from Ireland, they do, if you, you don't have to pull a lot away mm. to sort of come to the conclusion that they, you know, they are known species, they're just not in the same place. And the thing with Connemara, especially, is you've got this area, it's about how many miles? It's about four or five miles across. Um, very Gimlet bog and there's you know there are there's dozens and dozens of lakes big small all in a sort of walking distance mm -hmm. so if you had an animal, interconnected yeah basically yeah. if you look at the, if you google it you see it and mm -hmm. you know an animal that got into one of them mm -hmm. so a couple of yards up to the next one etc and you could get it you see what I mean so there's and we actually saw seals in that region when we were over last time. Yeah. I, I, I really don't think there's any doubt that seals come in. They come in land. They do it all the time in search of food. You know, a nice little sojourn in a lake somewhere. Get a couple of fish and, and make your way out in a few days. It happens all the time. Well, it's, it's quite interesting that there's actually, to get back to the, the seal theory, <clears throat> there's actually no... Um, biological reason why sea lions don't reside in the North Atlantic because of the if you look at uh, the food availability, you look at the temperature there's no reason it's actually it's actually a bit of a, a paradox why there are no population there's no population of sea lions of otarids in the North Atlantic and the other thing with regard to the likes of the West of Ireland and Connemara as Rob was saying uh, the Roundstone Ball Complex has, I think, about 128 locks on it within 25 square miles. I've been to about 15 or 20 of those. I've been to locks that a lot of the locals haven't been to. It's very dangerous. Rob will tell you, I'd be quite, you know, adventurous like, and it's nothing would bother me. But there are farmers who have drowned in those locks because they're isolated, you know, and they're they're after sheep that they've lost and. Uh, you know, but they are all connected, and it's the fact that there is the proximity to the Atlantic Ocean. And at night time, I mean, it is a veritable wilderness. I've shown other cryptozoologists uh, friendly with, and they've they've actually likened the Roundstone Ball Complex to the the you know the tundra of the Arctic. Wow. You know, and it's just, it's just it's, it's it's very it's similar to there's a region like that in uh, uh, I think in in Northwest Scotland. There's a big, there's the, the, the lake, there's a, it's like a bog or a, a huge, it's, it's near Sutherland or mm. somewhere, and it's, uh, it's probably bigger. So that, those, those, those regions do exist. But to go back to the whole thing about uh, Pinnipes in the North Atlantic, you know, it's interesting that that belief, you know, from uh, going back from the, you know, and you have Scandinavia, mm. you, you know, including Iceland, Norway, you have Scotland, you have Ireland, you know, that's all one region in the North Atlantic. You know, so that in itself is fascinating. You know, why is there that belief? Why are those sightings still happening? Why have they happened? 
you know, in the past, you know, does that does that and that, that indicates to me that there is a population of something unknown that has that has uh, that has resided there, you know. Oh yeah, well, I mean, whatever it turns out to be, it's there is something that we don't know about that's that's causing these sightings. That's for sure. Yeah, but the trouble is, it gets confusing then when you consider the whole water horse, um, you know, motive, you know, because um, as I said, it's all it's it seems to have sort of formulated around about the ninth or tenth century mm -hmm. in Scandinavia, Scotland, and Ireland. Um, and even folklorists, you know, they, they've even identified different types of stories associated with it. So you get one that's common in Scandinavia, mm -hmm. one that comes from Ireland, a couple that come from Scotland. So there was obviously some sort of widespread belief, probably before the peoples migrated and became, you know, Scandinavians, Germans, mm. whatever. Um, yeah. It's very difficult to unravel that. And you also have to respect the fact that it could, at the end of the day, you could also be just talking about, um, you know, a, a story to warn you against the perils of water. Mm. Well, I mean, most folklore exists for that very, very reason. And you see it in all, for want of a better word, archaic cultures that still, that have still retained some of their former beliefs, whether that's in the, in the muscle memory of the culture or an active belief like you find in Iceland yeah. that the and I have this I had an interview recently with a, a chap in Vancouver Island about the Zunikwar and the Bukwas and we were discussing the way in some Celtic societies uh, like the ones I've grown up in the one you're from as well Gary some of that it, it still exists it's hard to extricate the true details out of that folklore but there is truth in it but it's mixed up with spirituality and culture and history and so it's, you know, which bit is real and which bit isn't. There's definitely something there. And it's definitely a warning of some kind. But is it like Rob says, to keep kids out of the woods, to keep them away from the water and to warn of dangers? Or is it because essentially there was something they didn't know about living there at that time? And that was the warning, as plain as it you know, appears to be. Yeah well, but, yeah, well, I'm just going to say from my, my own experience and because, you know, my dad's a sheep farmer, that you see people living, you know, country people, they are so in tune with their environment mm -hmm. because that's how they live, do you know? Like yeah. my, my, my dad's, you know, will tell me, would not be an ornithologist, but be able to tell me about it. It was either a sparrow hawk or a mm -hmm. hawk has taken that pigeon, has left it on the, anyone's consumed it, has eaten it on the field where a sheep are. You know, he's able to tell me you know, look, there's a buzzard or there's a red kite. And this is a man that, that, that isn't an ornithologist, doesn't, mm -hmm. doesn't, isn't fascinated by the study of birds, but it's just so in tune with his environment. So I, I would say that those people, especially rural people and country people, there's definitely um, a, a, some element of truth. There's mm -hmm. a, a definitely a real animal has been sighted. Now, what that real animal is, is the, is, is the difficulty, you know, but... Yeah. I would say for all intents, yeah, there are not just pinnipeds, but there are like, you know, really, really giant forms of eels, mm. uh, you know, outside specimens of eels, otters, you know, Irish otters as well, common, you know, European otter. There's also probably, you know, deer coming across swimming. Mm. You know, there's a lot of misidentification, large fish as well, particularly pike. Yeah, so, catfish then? I mean, it's, but it, it is interesting. There's no no catfish as as far as I'm aware that have been. No, caught. there's never been any real. Okay. I think there's a few. Yeah, might be one or. But it wouldn't it wouldn't be very prevalent in Ireland, sure, wouldn't Rob? No, I think there's, you know, because they weren't as far as we know they weren't released. Yeah. There as they were in England, um, but I think the evidence for Ireland there isn't. Yeah. Yeah. There. I mean, even here, what Rob? There's not a lot of them actually, considering, but um. They are, they are becoming more frequent. Um, that is interesting to me, Gary. And I, I think as well, I was trying to think of the psychological side, the rural reputational risk from making something up about your environment, about something you've seen, telling your, your neighbours and uh, your friends about it, the people in church or you know, the people down at the pub. It just seems to be too big to me to just be 
giving BS out. You're not inviting the papers down. You're not making up stories to to, to get fame and fortune because that simply isn't what happens when you claim to see something unusual. Normally, you get a bit of a grilling and uh, <laughs> you get taken to the papers and chucked out on the other side without anything but a you know loss of credibility, unfortunately. Yeah. The, the interest well, from you know what we found was that when you speak of Connemara and that area, you know, the first thing that comes to cryptozoologists or people interested in that is the horses, mm -hmm. the so-called horses of Connemara. But as far as we could tell, you know, going back and looking in all sorts of sources, that was a name that only became sort of apparent in the 60s. Okay. Even though there was a report of an animal called a horse seal by one of the witnesses in the 60s, there is no evidence that okay. there's a widespread belief in them. Okay. So you have to wonder as well how much has been influenced by Loch Ness as well, because yeah. that completely changed the way people And you have to remember that for the area of Loch Ness, I mean, that popularity still supports their community even now, their whole... Yeah communities based upon it. The one time I was there, I stayed in Fort Augustus and uh, right. I was asking about the population. And she said, the residential, the lady there, this is the, the biggest town outside of Inverness, which is, you know, yeah. miles up the road around the loch. And it was really pristine. I was really surprised for a big tourist destination. She said the residential population of Fort Augustus was the biggest at 500 people. And I, there's 500 people on my street. Oh. You know, it's, just, it's at least 500 on my yeah. street. Uh, just, Jerusalem, just that's incredible. And, but for their area, it's something like 32, 33, 34 million a year, every year, 150,000 visitors go to yes, the area yeah. plus. Yeah. And I think that in itself has attracted people all over the world to, um, you know, making a bit more out of uh, an unusual situation from time to time. But it never seems to have stuck anywhere else. Even at Lake Champlain when I was there, there was hardly any champ right. tourism. And yet, you know, it seemed to be a, a pretty good uh, uh, cryptid to make some money out of nobody's doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting because it doesn't exist in uh, it doesn't exist in Ireland. Yeah, no. You know, you only you know, you'd only you'd only know about Connemara from reading the literature and uh, and Connemara is important because it has had the majority of sightings yeah. from the whole of Ireland, you know. But um, we're talking about, Rob was talking about horse seal. Mm. It could also be uh, a corruption and uh, a sort of, a, it's a, uh, a mispronunciation mm. due to the dialect and the phonetics. Okay. So we, we came across that as well. You know, instead, of, instead of horse, a horse seal, uh, you know, people in Connemara could be calling it a horse, you know, or sorry, horse seal could be a horse seal. Seal, okay. You see where I'm getting from? Yeah, so whenever you yeah. say from the dialect, ah, it's a horse, it's a horse seal, mm. and you think it's a horse eel, but it could be it could be referring to a horse seal. Yeah. And funny enough, in Canada, you know, the grey seal is known as a horse-headed seal. Is it really? So you have to take that. It's, 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 it's also, there's a lot to it whenever you start researching it, but that's very but interesting. It keeps drawing us back, you know? I would imagine as well a good is, strong country yeah. accent to an English newspaper that easily could be flipped to a horse yeah. seal overnight. <laughs> oh yeah, Easy yeah, yeah, so. but we, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I I I've missed I've missed seeing these animals on about four occasions. Mm. Interesting enough, in Connemara, and the closest was myself, my wife, and our two daughters were at a region at a, a very touristy spot um, called Kylemore, Kylemore Abbey and Gardens. And literally one and a half mile up the road, a sighting occurred and I didn't hear about it till the next day. Wow. And it was a large hump within a lock, which had previously no other history of sightings. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, literally were one and a half miles away, but I didn't know about it till the next day. Of course, I went up and investigated early yeah. the next morning, but didn't see anything. And again, that lock has had some of the most re recent sightings there's two there. There's Loch Muck and Loch Fee. Mm -hmm. Loch Fee is quite deep by our standards, about 150 feet in, in depth. But they're linked by a river and actually another outlet into the Atlantic. And Rob can tell you more about that. I mean, we, we researched that back in 2015, mm -hmm. 2013, 2015. 
And then our last visit to Connemara was 2018. You know, sadly, we haven't been able to get back because of COVID. You know, yeah. but um, Rob will tell you more about that. I mean, you know, Rob, you want to elaborate on that, do you, about Lock, yeah, Mock, yeah, Lock that Fee? Was, that was very interesting because one of Gary's contacts he interviewed um, said they, he saw what he, what was the waterfalls? It was a, a big animal that was white. And he did a sketch, well, Gary did a sketch based on what he explained. Mm. And it, it looked a bit horse-like, but it had a very sort of curved down, beaky sort of mouth mm. or head area. So we happened to go exploring down this path near to the lock and we came across a bloke who was standing there and Gary's got the gift of the, the natter. So he went over and started saying, oh yeah, yeah, we're doing this. You know what I mean? Um, and he said, have you seen any unusual animals around? And this chap just turned around and said, oh, there was a beluga whale dead on the beach some time ago. Ah. And if you look, you picture a beluga, it has got sort of curved yeah. down. They have neck. a flexible neck. But they're also um, Cuvier's dolphins and other cetaceans that are common in that area. Mm. So we thought, well, that's a bit of a coincidence. Surely, if you've got an animal that's been drawn that looks like one of these cetaceans, whatever. Yeah. Um, so it must be one and the same. And it happened about the same period of time. The thing was that Loch Fee is quite a big lock, as Gary says. Mm. But then you've got Loch Muck next to it, which is smaller, and it is connected. And then from Loch Muck to the sea, you've got a sort of winding, a couple of entry points, if you like. But as we went down those entry points to look at them, you know, there was like a, a big partition in between. So to, although it makes sense, that animal would have had to swim up one of the channels into Loch Muck and then swim through another channel into Loch Fee. A big animal, you know, mm. quite a big animal. Um, oh, yeah, Gary's showing you the picture there. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's so that must mean that you don't know what gets in. You know, if it's possible for an animal like that to, you know, go make a, a pretty big journey. To get into a place and cause a sighting, then you know. Beluga whales—they're very—they're very used to tight spaces as well. I think up there in the Arctic with the ice flow and all the little tight spaces, they got to maneuver through rivers and the rest of it. We had one, Benny, the beluga whale, living here in the Thames uh, for about eight months. Oh yeah, yeah. just stayed down there in the Thames estuary near Gravesend. Seen by a lot of people. I went down there three days, non-stop on the water, in the very patch right. where he was feeding and living. Didn't see him once. Not once, not a blow, oh, nothing. Okay. It's been three days, and I thought, well, this is a, a very finite body of water, and yet I can't find it. And that just goes to show that you know yeah. it's difficult to spot animals in the water. I think a blue world, that's a that's a, especially since it was found dead, that's a perfect stand-in for that. Where there's an inlet, in my view, where there's an inlet, whatever, to the sea, it's unobstructed. Yes. They could definitely be monster imposters, but I also have my itinerant Nessie for all these eight monsters theory that they come in now and again. They come in for feeding, or uh, one of the things I discovered when looking at Loch Ness was that nearly all of the sightings that were not mid Loch were next to Inver villages, you know, Inver meaning river mouth. And of course, with the yeah. eel runs and the salmon runs, there's a great place to get food that's kind of suddenly startled those fish come out of that, that river mouth into the deep water and stash there you go you've got it i also investigated uh, lake windermere for bonessi and nearly all of the sightings were in the north of the lake yes. right okay. next to the river rothe where there was a trout farm <laughs> and once again i just thought okay well what would an animal do look for a good feeding spot right there was salmon weir in, in loch fee as well wasn't there oh really I mean, there's so much, yeah. so much salmon up there. It would not surprise me. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. If they get but in it, somehow, Ireland, when the I feeding think, is yeah. good. But I, I, I don't think that can apply to some of the locks in Ireland because some of those locks used to have a, a rich tradition of 
sea trout or the white trout. So sea trout and salmon, but some of those locks don't have that. Uh, they don't even have those populations of trout in them anymore. So I think uh-huh. that it's more with uh, maybe exter- external parasites, you know, and also pure pinniped curiosity. Yeah. But those animals, you know, and they could be um, ostracized from a main group. They could be immature males. They could mm-hmm. be, you know, maybe uh, sick or dying or, you know, something that's unhealthy about them. And I, that's why I think, and I, I was often, and I often wondered about the, was there a pattern with sightings up around that region of the North Atlantic? And did it mean that, you know, were sightings sort of very sporadic? So was there, but, but in, in the sense that there was still a, uh, a pattern. So maybe was it every five years we were seen in Connemara, you know, and did they go around in a, a, migratory, a migratory route, you know, from Scandinavia, Norway, mm-hmm. Iceland, Scotland, west coast of Ireland and back again, the North Atlantic. But, I, you know, the, 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 the food supply does make a certain amount of sense. But whenever we started, to, when I, I've been researching the whole thing, mm-hmm. that particularly Loch Ona and Loch Shanahever, which are two locks, and there's a third lock called Glen Bricken. And those are uh, south on the Westport Road out of Clifton, which is the main town in Connemara. It's often known as the capital of Connemara. Mm-hmm. And those, you know, they have had at least at least about 12 good sightings in those three locks. But they, you know, the whole thing with John Trout by the local Anglin Association and there are eels, but you know, there's also waterfalls as well that impede, you know, the, the, the passage of some of those, uh, of say, say a predator coming in. So it might not necessarily be the, I think it's more to do with the, the fact that it's the remoteness and the mm. accessibility and all those locks are linked. And they're so, you know, and they are so remote that under the cover of darkness, anything can come in. As Rob says, like, mm. you know, Roundstone Bog is, is unbelievable if you were ever to see it. And the I'd love to see it. Fantastic. I'd love to come by and see it. Actually, if everything opens up, I, yeah. I'd hopefully get over there and oh, pay yeah. you guys a visit, say hello, and have a look yeah, around. Certainly. Yeah, we, we, uh, yeah, I, I miss it. Like as I say, I've been going. You know, myself, and my wife would have went as well. And at one stage, I was going four times in, in one year. And if I have good friends mm. there now because I'm going for so long, it's like a second home. And but you know, even though Ireland isn't a big country. You know, by even European standards, um, it still takes me from outside Belfast a five hours journey to Connemara. <laughs> oh, but this is the this still, is the roads as well, though. When you get that rural, there's not that many roads in Ireland, and it's the same with Wales. Well, the there's road, not the a lot of roads. Road. You know, the big roads. I mean, not a lot of main yeah. motorways. Yeah. You know, you got um all the little country lanes. But whenever I was driving around Wales, it's like it's like a couple of main motorways. That's it. <laughs> that's it and the rest of it like uh, Britain is a, a small country Ireland's a small country but it's not small if you're on foot right I mean everywhere is the expanse when no, you're definitely. here in the field yeah. so um, space is space and it's enough, I think it's enough for an animal I like I like this this theory I like this line of thinking that you guys have um, especially because I believe it'll lead to it'll lead to clearing the dross so only the true awesome sightings can remain. Those that might be an unclassified uh, creature. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's well, what zoology yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, there's so much is regurgitated or a generation of you online getting stuff from social media and that, that mm. things are repeated ad nauseum when actually there are other explanations, you know, and until we sort of practice maybe a reductive cryptozoology mm-hmm. and show people that we can weed out, you know, things that aren't true, then, you know, that may give cryptozoology, a, a, you know, perhaps a bit more push rather than just making, you know, saying there's a monster here, monster there, whatever. Well, I think there's a, there's a lot of clickbait out there. And I think one of the things I came to, and I got really stuck in the psychological side of things for a while, I was last year or the year before, one of them, was that looking back on some of the reports that very famous people in cryptozoology had made, and they were just theoretical reports. I theorized that there are alligators in the sewers that were breeding. I theorized that there's a, a long-necked pinniped 
somewhere in the North Atlantic. And suddenly people build upon that as if it's a foundational fact and they judge everything else they see based upon it. And so what we actually use is um, we, we use theories as foundational facts and build our research upon that going forward. And it's, it's one of the things that suddenly struck me and affected me. And I thought, okay, you're going to have to go back and look at a lot of your stuff. And I always get angry with myself because I'm going back and debunking my own, my own theories and saying, that's not true. No, that's not right. That's not right. Reverse that. Take that out. But that's supposed to be what it is about. And there is, Rob, I think, guys like you and other people now, you guys coming along, actually, that are saying, no, this needs a, a scientific eye again, you know, a rational it's not even scientific. I mean, if you look at the pioneers, well, like the, ones, yeah. Well, here's a sorry, 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 Matt. Um, you know, I mean, this is where a lot of the reports come from. You know, from the 60s, 70s, etc., mm -hmm. etc. Now, at that time, there was no internet, there were no computers as we use them today. You know, there weren't huge online archives of historic newspapers mm -hmm. or documents, so they didn't really have you know, uh, all they could do was document what they found. And that tended to get repeated and repeated, which is fine into the 90s. But when you get to the late 90s and where we are now, you know, there is so much information you can check and verify, mm. rather, you know, rather than just regurgitate it. And that's, I think that's what you have to do, you know, from reports of bunyips in Australia, you know, there's alternative explanations, which are in the next issue of the paper, if you like, you know, so... You have to go back and look at these things. I think that's yeah, so good. Okay. Makes sense. Well, here, here yeah, here, here's something to think about. Um, has there could be the, the the fascinating possibility that due to global warming, that the Northwest Passage has opened up and become free of ice enough for enough time, you know, and, uh, during enough enough time of the year for a population. Of say, you know, stellar sea lands mm. to come across and explore new territories. You know, it does still, from a zoological point of view, it is still fascinating, and it is a big paradox why there are no, you know, otarids eared seals in the North Atlantic. There's no valid reason for that not to not to no, occur. No, I, I think I think that that's and maybe, the same. maybe maybe it doesn't. Maybe it does occur. Maybe it doesn't occur because it. It, it actually does occur, do you know, that there is a population, and though that population has been undiscovered, and that has been result, and that that has resulted in those animals, the folkloric, you know, the animals of folklore from that part of the the world, Scandinavia, you know, including Iceland, Scotland, you know, as in the water horse, and Ireland, as in the Arkiska, and the horse eels, so. Maybe that's where, you know that that that's that, that's where maybe and it just haven't been discovered properly you know because there hasn't been the willingness, the acceptance yeah. to say look, this this could be a problem. And it obviously boils down the funding and even just you know from the going I mean, there's probably a couple of. You know, species of ape in Southeast Asia we haven't seen yet. There's, but there uh, are. I mean, they're finding yeah. them all the time. Yeah, proper, you know, a couple of whales that we haven't seen before, you know, maybe dolphin, etc. Um, so, you know, there are things out there, but you have to take a rational and sort of pragmatic and logical approach to what has already been. Rob, I think it's, um, yeah, I must say that I think it's it's refreshing it's reassuring and I think if there is something let's say slightly more exciting out there to find that's the approach that will find it that's the approach to find yeah. it I think we'll leave it there but I'd just like to say you know, thank you so much if I do get a chance if if the, the <laughs> if um, I don't know your, who your <laughs> prime minister is anymore but if they open up island and they let us across um, to infect you guys we'll come across with all our germs and uh, <laughs> and have a look at those um, those uh, lochs and lace no, and, and so. you know yeah. I would love to to be there. Uh, I've already ever been to Ireland a couple of times uh, on the east coast, like like all the Brits do. Yeah, 
all the, all the regular places. The West Coast is, is something that's been in my mind for a long time. So yeah, it would be fantastic to come over and say oh, yeah, hi. And, yeah. and I advise anybody listening, get the books, look them up online, get the books. The Seal Serpent is a great book. I've got a, a great list here actually of all the of all the books. The um, Irish Aquatic Monsters Survey and Definite, Definitive Guide, Field Guide to Irish Aquatic Monsters, uh, Monster Ulster, Connacht, uh, Galway and Connemara, and, and more to boot, all reasonably priced. So check them out. They are fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the field guides are really a breakdown of the main work, the definitive guide. And that was just because we know there were people out there who haven't got an interest or background in cryptozoology, but if they were tourists or people and they were familiar with some of the legends, they might be they might come across something that you know we could they could yeah. let us know about, you know, something we haven't found. So but yeah the two works of the Seal Serpent and the Definitive Guide basically. I would imagine they have these handy little maps and, and lists of sightings inside as well. So you know if you are in that area and you, you want to find a monster or even an unknown seal or an errant sea lion um, harassing people yeah. in the country of Ireland, <laughs> then uh, and check them out. Gary, yeah. Rob, thank you so much for coming on. It's been awesome. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Bye. Okay.